Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Happy summer, y'all, and welcome to our summer series. We will spend the next six weeks looking at stories of women in the Hebrew Bible, and we start today with a doozy, the stories of Sarah and Hagar, which we find in Genesis chapters 16 and 21. It is so tempting to read these as stories of just two individuals, or three if you add Abraham in there, but what are the social forces at work here? How much agency do these women really have? As the power dynamics become increasingly twisted and the possibility of a peaceable ending for this family becomes ever smaller, we wonder, why doesn't God just subvert the whole social structure and tell a different story? Well, that's not what happens. But through the pain and plain awfulness of these stories, we see clearly that blessing can be intermingled with injustice and that it is a powerful thing and an empowering thing a witness to our sufferings. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Bobby. Welcome to summer. Hey, happy summer. Happy summer. It is good. My and my family, you probably know this about me, but in my family, we talk about the difference between Dr. Williamson and summer Bobby. I don't, I don't think I, maybe I forgot. Yeah, I don't know. We love Summer Bobby. Dr. Williamson is stressed out kind of a lot. Summer Bobby, that guy's awesome. That's so awesome. Well, the the now best we get guy Summer is... Bobby on the podcast. <laughs> I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> the best guy is Sabbatical Bobby. Uh, that's my favorite guy. Cause he yeah. just doesn't have anything to do for like a year at a time. I mean, he has stuff to do, but he does not have to be responsible to anyone directly. But. We won't see we won't him, see him again for a while. <laughs> yeah, my next sabbatical is like, Bobby. I just had one last year, so I got like five more years to go. So, yep, alas. Well, we're starting our summer series today, which is not, the narrative lectionary goes sort of, <laughs> follows the school year. I mean, that's not really how they think about it, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. And so at Pentecost... And they go on break for the summer. There's no official narrative lectionary right. for the summer. Yes. And so for the past couple of years, we have chosen some area that in the biblical world, some you know chunk of biblical text that we wanted to lift up and do our own series on. Yeah. And so this year we have chosen, drum roll please, <sighs> women in the Bible. Women in the Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, in fact, Oh, they are all in the Hebrew Bible. They I guess are. I should yeah. have known that. <laughs> <laughs> they are. There was a time in which we thought about doing women in the both testaments, but the women in the New Testament actually get covered in the narrative lectionary. Mm. It's just sort of, I mean, it's it's like in fits and starts and here and there. But when I started trying to figure out who the women would be, I was like, well, we actually do a podcast on that one and that one. So the women of the Hebrew Bible 
get largely overlooked. And so that's yeah. what we have that's what we have settled on. You know, it's funny as a woman who loves Bible, loves me some Bible, it has taken me a while in my career to develop particular interest in the female characters in the Bible. I feel like they're often portrayed in a in a way that I don't particularly like. And yeah. to be frank, I have been encouraged by my mentors along the way, not like explicitly, but uh, people seemed pleased when I chose other areas to focus on in the yeah. biblical text. And so if there are women who are listening who are not sure about embarking on this, I don't know. I just want to say like, I see you. Yeah. It takes some some koach, some strength to say like, no, we're gonna we're gonna wrestle with this story a little bit and see if see if we can make it speak to us in different ways. And yeah, yeah it is it is a worthwhile endeavor. I'm so curious because you were saying only recently, which means you've sort of shifted at some point to being more interested in the women characters. Yeah, can you say a little bit about what that shift has been. The shift for me really started after I had children. Mm. I think in part because prior to that, I was not aware of ways in which my life seemed particularly different than a man's life. That's not to say it wasn't different. I just wasn't aware of it. And I was very aware of it after I had children. Yeah. I don't know. It felt sort of incumbent upon me to try to see my own experiences somewhere in the text and also to recognize when the women in the text also don't speak to me. Right. You know, what that what that means. Just because we're all women doesn't mean we agree. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So today we start with the story of Hagar and Sarah. Yeah. Which is split across two chapters in the book of Genesis, chapter 16 and chapter 21. Chapter 21, we read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish community. So it's really a text that is mm. for people who only go to synagogue for the high holidays. They know this. Story. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it's hard. It's a hard story. Yeah. These are hard texts for These me. These are, yeah. These are hard. Absolutely, they are. But really important. Yeah. Before we get started on that text, I think it's probably worth just saying that we're doing a six-week series on women of the Bible, Hebrew Bible. Three of them are podcasts that we recorded back in the fall as special episodes on Tamar and Rahav and Bathsheba. And then we're doing three new ones. So today on, uh, I'm going to say Hagar, because that's the way I, mm-hmm. I say that. Hagar and Sarah, and then Miriam, and then the daughters of Zalafahad. Mm-hmm. And so that's the series. And somebody asked me, like, what's the theme of the series that's holding it together? And I think the theme is women are important. And let's lift up the stories of biblical women. Is, is that kind of how you're thinking about this? Yes, and I think that looking at stories of women from this time period gives us a particular lens on people that society has not imbued mm. with a lot of they don't have a lot of a lot of like official powers. They have to figure, you know, like they're sort of uh have to figure out other ways to get what they need in the world. So that's an interesting lens to have. And I yeah. just think it it's so easy for us to default to like the neutral human is male. Right. And female or any other variation on the gender continuum is bonus. 
you know? And, and so this is pressing back and saying, no, these, these are neutral humans too. Like we're all, we're all just, we're all just humans. Complex figures. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. All right. So I think that's probably enough background. Enough background. Let's get into it. Do we need to introduce the character of, at this point, her name is Sarai. Yeah. Avram's wife. So yeah, when we pick up in Genesis 16, what should we know about Sarai and Avram? I think the quick version of it, standing on one foot, as you would say, is that Avram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, as they become, have received a promise from God back in chapter 12 that they would have a blessing from God that would consist of land and progeny, so descendants and and a homeland. And the text has introduced the complication that they are quite old and beyond the years of childbearing. And so this is sort of the plot that the plot device or the issue that motivates the plot throughout really the whole Abraham cycle is how is this promise going to come to fruition? And so when this text picks up, we're some years into this, uh, into this promise, I think I think the text is going to say 10 years later or something like that. And so there's some anxiety, some anxiousness about where is this child going to come from and how is the promise going to be fulfilled? There's a lot more that one could say. I think that might be what we need to get into this text. Is, is there anything else you yeah. would add there? I think that's good. I think that gives us enough to get started. Okay, let's do it then. Okay, I am picking up in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 in the JPS. Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Avram, Look, the Lord has kept me from bearing. Consort with my maid. Perhaps I shall have a son through her. And Avram heeded Sarai's request. So Sarai, Avram's wife, took her maid, Hagar the Egyptian, after Avram had dwelt in the land of Canaan ten years and gave her to her husband Avram as concubine. He cohabited with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was lowered in her esteem. And Sarai said to Avram, The wrong done me is your fault. I myself put my maid in your bosom, and now she sees that she is pregnant, and I am lowered in her esteem. The Lord decide between you and me. Avram said to Sarai, Your maid is in your hands. Do with her as you think right. Then Sarai treated her harshly, and she ran away from her. I just feel like already there are so many social forces at work in this Mm -hmm. story beyond. Like, it's so easy to just read this as an interpersonal story between Sarai and Hagar. But they are, it's almost like they're not quite pawns, but there's there's so much else going on in in the, the power structures that they're a part of. So thinking first about Sarai, she has not born a child. Yeah. In the world that she lives in, in this time, like, what does this mean for her? Yeah, I mean, for Sarai and for women in the biblical period, like, childbirth is kind of the thing, right? This is the the mark of blessing. This is the way in which you contribute, in some sense, to society, the way you have value as a person. Yeah. And so she is interesting because she's already sort of once been through the process of she got old 
and had not been able to have children and sort of passed by that time in her life. And then, then after that, she gets this promise from God, or Abraham does anyway, that, oh no, there is going to be a child. And so she's, I don't, she's got this sort of reassertion of pressure or something, mm. expectation on her that maybe she had sort of come to terms with, maybe at one point, or at least thought that that period of being anxious about it had passed her by. And then now here it is again. And then just a sort of, I mean, the, there's this sort of patriarchal assumption here in which these women are having to exist that it's the issue of Abraham's heir, that like, how are we going to fulfill the descendants, secure the legacy, secure the divine blessing of this man and the expectation of all of that is placed on her. So really, I mean, I feel, I feel for her just, it's like patriarchy, with a divine overlay on it. Like it is, it is yeah. such a pressure filled situation for yeah. her. What would you say about that? I just, I mean, I really just want to, I love that you pulled out that, like the thought that this is sort of round two for her, yeah. you know? And I, I mean, I didn't have the easiest time having children. And I know when there were moments in that process, there would be periods of time where where I was hopeful and where I was not hopeful. And sometimes the hopeful parts were more painful. Yeah. Because of exactly what you're saying. Like it's, it's anxiety and it's orienting yourself towards something that might really not happen. And you really have no control over whether it happens or not. And so it, it, even now today in the modern world can shape so much of your identity. Who am I in the world? And all the more so when that really was like pretty explicitly your role in society. And sort of struggle through all of that and kind of come to peace with it and have, find some resolution about the future and then to have that opened back up again. Yeah. Mm. It's very difficult. So she has this idea, obviously not of, you know, just her own crazy idea, that Hagar can bear a child with Avram and it will be like she had the child. Right. So it's not only the way that she talks about it, it's not only so Avram can have a son. It will somehow also like it's sort of it's like this sort of variation on adoption ish because the (laughs) other mother's still there and actually living in your house. So interesting is this sort of trope plays out again, as you know, in the Jacob story where Jacob is married to Leah and to Rachel and Leah is able to have children and Rachel's not. And so there is the giving of the, I can't remember if it's Bilha or Zilpah. They both end up sort of yeah. also bearing children. And that is sort of a replacement uh, for Rachel. And then later, Leah is not able to have children. So she gives the other maidservant. And so this is something that happens. And it happens in the story of Genesis that the children born are sort of, yeah, exactly. It's adoption or surrogacy. They're legally speaking, technically speaking, the child belongs to the the wife, but right. actually the actual birth mother is the is the servant or the slave. Right. Yes. That that seems like how it's theoretically supposed to work. Although right. we see very quickly that it's it's very complicated. Yes. <laughs> it's very emotionally complicated. It's yes. very like power dynamic complicated. Oh yeah. Because once this plan is successful. And Hagar becomes pregnant, you know, to be to become pregnant is empowering in this 
oh, yeah. story. And Sarai has been the more powerful one because she's the mistress and Hagar is her servant. But now Hagar's body can do something that Sarai's body cannot do. But also Hagar didn't really have autonomy over her body in this story. I mean, the text doesn't even get into that. But right. it just gets so, it gets so twisted. It reminds me a little bit of, I, I am very far from an expert on the caste system, but have you have you read the book Cast or have any sort of? I, I have not. I mean, the only thing I will say is is this from what I have learned: the sense that people are born into their sort of like where on the ladder of power you are, and everything is okay as long as you stay in that place. Mm-hmm. But it's like the worst thing that can happen <laughs> is is that there's any shift between the rungs on that ladder. Mm. And so I guess what made me think of it as soon as as Hagar, it says she looked down on Sarai and it's like everything exploded. Yes. When that happened. Hagar's character is so interesting to me in all of this because we do get that line in verse four that when she found out she was pregnant, she no longer respected her mistress or she looked mm-hmm. down on her or something. Yeah. We don't get that narrated really at all. And so I'm, I've just been curious, like what Hagar's attitude was and how much of that was real and how much of that was perceived. Yeah. You know, the being in the privileged position and then suddenly someone else is, has a privilege that you lack. It's easy for us to perceive that as a sliding, even when the person has done absolutely zero. Like, you know, when, when somebody, as you're saying, moves up on the scale, even if they didn't want to or mean to, or actually have any attitude whatsoever. So I read, I mean, we don't get a lot in this part of the story from Hagar and knowing what her role is, but you, you can't imagine that she wanted this for herself. At least I, I don't think like she is an enslaved Egyptian. She is in a social circumstance that is complex and the power differentials are there. She doesn't seem to have agency. Like there's never anybody saying, Hey, are you willing to like take on this role? It's sort of Sarah gives her. And so I just, I feel so bad for her kind of taking on this role that I don't think she probably wanted to take on, maybe had no option about. And then as soon as she becomes pregnant, which was the whole point. It was the whole point. Then suddenly she's being, she's gotten herself in trouble for something that she didn't really have any say in. The rabbis who wrote the Midrash found this very interesting too, I guess, thinking that uh, it made them wonder about Hagar. And there's actually a Midrash that she is an Egyptian princess that was given to Avram by Pharaoh. And Mm. that, so she has this, like deep inside this sense of like dignity from her upbringing. She wasn't raised in, it's sort of like the opposite of the caste system I was talking about. She wasn't raised on a on a lower rung. And so this really, you know, uh, I think the rabbis wondered sort of precisely what you're suggesting. Like this person who had no say in the matter and who is a slave in the household, like why would this make her haughty? Yeah. which seems to be what the, the text is yeah. suggesting. Mm-hmm. Bobby, what do you make of Sarai's outburst 
to Avram in verse 5. This harassment is your fault? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to this whole system of patriarchal expectation in which these two mm. women are trying to sort of survive in a, in a man's world. And so even though Avram has really had very little to do with this, yeah. other than just to say, Avram, Avram did just as Sarai said. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, the sort of blessing that he's been given, the expectation that he has, like he's anxious, he's been anxious in the previous chapter about where's this child going to come from. And so this sort of, I don't know, just this sort of pressure that he is exerting, I think almost a little, he's not intending to, it seems, but just the expectation on him and the way that plays out on the the women in, in the story and so she would not be in this position if it mm-hmm. were not for him having mm-hmm. this promise from God and her mm-hmm. having these expectations that she didn't ask for. So in that sense, it is, it is his fault. Yeah. That's, I like that a lot because as I was saying before that, you know, it's really easy to read this as just three individual people, but really there are so many forces at yeah. work here. Avram is is the symbol of the whole, like he benefits from the patriarchal system. And and so in that way, you know, he he's the representative of this thing that has caused the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I had not thought of that. That that makes good sense. So it it tells us at the end of this section that Sarai treated Hagar harshly. Yeah. And and she ran away. Hagar ran away. It doesn't tell us what that means. I guess I just want to name here that it, it's hard. It is, I have to dig pretty deep to find empathy for Sarai Yeah. in this story. I was wondering what, as I was preparing what you were going to say about that. Because the text kind of like she is, I mean, she's the matriarch. In the, yeah. in the story of Israel. And so you're kind of led to want to yeah. relate to her and have compassion for her and respect for her, but it's hard to find in this text. So I was curious what you would, what you would say about that. I mean, I think, you know, I feel like I keep sort of saying the same thing here, but it reminds me a little bit of how like these new stories will, uh, depending what your new source is, sort of make it sound like the raising of minimum wage is what's making your hamburger so expensive and not the fact that the folks in the corporate office are making millions of dollars every year. Like it's right. it's pitting people against each other who make 12 bucks an hour. Like yeah. that's really not, <laughs> you can raise up that story and you can get upset about the extra $3 an hour, but you're missing the whole system behind it. And so I think the best I can do is is be aware of the extent to which Sarai felt like in some way her like sh- her her survival in some existential way was tied to her ability to have children to bear children and she is it's it's not I'm, I I hate saying this stuff because I feel like there's stereotypes of women and I don't want to play those out but like her outburst to Avram earlier I don't know that it has to be 
reasonable and logical in order for it to be emotionally true. Right. And so I both feel like I can sort of empathize with her, the level of her pain without defending what she's doing. Yeah. That's kind of the best I can Mm -hmm. muster for her. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you're kind of trying to sort out those dynamics because it's really complex. Yeah. I, you know, like one of the things, like there's a, there's a limited, a sense of limited resources here Mm -hmm. and competition for limited affection or limited Mm -hmm. honor or limited respect. And that puts people in, in really difficult positions. And the way that we respond is not always, you know, the way that we, we wish we responded. I, I think of Sarai that way too, is she, she has not responded well, but mm-hmm. she has been put in a situation that would that is exceedingly difficult. Yeah. And then Hagar, who is in an even more complex situation, like she does not have her own freedom. She is the ethnic outsider here. Yes. She is apparently being asked to do things against her own will, or at least it's not said that she's given any consent. And then when she successfully does the thing she's been asked to do, she's treated badly for it. She's punished for it. And we can think about all sorts of contemporary parallels to that as well. So this is just a bad situation in which it's not working. It's not really working for it, for anybody here. Yeah. And then I want to know why God didn't just like make a more plentiful, like there's like the God of plenty who provides manna in the wilderness. Like just make like, it's very much a part of my theology is there's plenty and we don't need to compete. And here there is not plenty. And so there is competition. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on women of the Hebrew Bible. Amy and I are grateful to you for being part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. Well, let's see what happens next, shall we? Yes. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 7. An angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the road to shore, and said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her harsh punishment. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly increase your offspring, and they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has paid heed to your suffering. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell alongside of all his kinsmen. And she called the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roi, by which she meant, Have I not gone on seeing after he saw me? 
Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It is between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore a son to Avram, and Avram gave the son that Hagar bore him the name Ishmael. Avram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Avram. It's a little known fact that that line in verse 8 is where the song Cotton Eye Joe came from. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Really? No, it's <laughs> no, <I> just... <laughs> not. You're lying. <laughs> no, but every time I read every time I read this passage, I start singing Cotton Eye Joe. And it makes me laugh. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did... Oh, that's probably a copyright violation of some sort. Anyway. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, this is a very serious passage, and so probably one should not be singing Cotton Eye Joe in the middle of it. But this is the way my mind works. Sometimes we need to lighten things up where we can. <laughs> yeah. Bobby, it is so striking to me that this angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar, and of all the many, I mean, like earlier when Hagar is introduced to us, she's called Hagar the Egyptian. And here she's called Hagar, slave of Sarai. Mm. And I just find it so striking that that's how the angel calls her. Like that's the aspect of her personhood that the angel raises up. What do you make of that? Oh, Amy, that's a troubling question to which I, to which I do not have <laughs> It a is great a troubling answer. question. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of social structures that are in place in this text are being affirmed by the angel. And mm-hmm. Hagar's identity is not, is not separate from that. That said, I think it's really like the fact that the angel finds her and speaks to her and she gets to encounter God. I mean, this is an experience that someone like you know, Jacob is going to have later. And so it's, it's, it's interesting that this God is presented in this text to this Egyptian woman who the angel describes as a slave. And yet here is the presence of God immediately with and sort of tending to her. So within the structures that it reaffirms, which I wish it did not reaffirm, Mm -hmm. there is a a moment of acknowledging her and her yes. value as a, as a human being outside of that structure, I think. Yeah. No, I love that you, that you drew that out for us, that this is, you know, got an angel of God appearing to someone who's not uh, in the, in the lineage, who's not the core family that we're following here. Right. And that's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. I think it's so interesting that the, that, that the angel, you know, refers Hagar as slave of Sarai and mm-hmm. and alongside that, as you said, reaffirms like you need to go back, you need to go back and be the slave of Sarai. And this is what, you know, that means submitting to her harsh treatment. Yeah. And then it offers this poem, like a blessing that focuses on a different part of her, like on her as an ancestor and a yeah. mother. Mm-hmm. And that those things just coexist, like that she is going to be a mother and have these blessings, and she's also going to go and suffer as a slave in a household. And I don't know, there's so much about this story that's so distressing and also, I guess, just feels true. Like those things are just both, they both exist at the same time. She will be a mm-hmm. mother and an ancestor, and she will struggle and suffer, and, and that's just how life is. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. You you really want God to sort of intervene here in some sort of liberative way. Yeah. And that's not the outcome. It's not the outcome. But there is blessing within the lack of liberation. Yeah. And so, you know, you often say you you wish the Bible would do some, do something yeah. different than what it does. <laughs> uh-huh. And I actually think that's really useful. And here's one of those places. And also there is blessing that takes place within this text. It's kind of a weird blessing though. Like you're going to have lots of kids. <laughs> it's going to be great. Also, he's going to be a wild ass of a man and fight with a lot <laughs> of people. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Yeah. yeah. It's, not the, mm-hmm. it's not the greatest blessing that one could ever get, but mm-hmm. it, Mm-hmm. But it is a blessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want it to be like too good or maybe we wouldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. After this sort of weird blessing, Hagar says, she, she calls God something that has to do with seeing. And there are all these notes in my text, meaning of Hebrew uncertain, meaning of Hebrew <laughs> yeah. uncertain. We don't, we don't yeah. know exactly exactly what it is uh she says i guess the question that i'm really thinking about is sort of what is the role of of seeing and being seen in this yeah. text what what do we get from that sort of added element that hagar's comments have to do with seeing somehow how does the jps read that line you are El Roy, and then. Uh-huh. By which she meant, have I not gone on seeing after he saw me? Mm. Which I get, I mean, that's just so awkward in English. Does that mean like, <laughs> I can't believe that I could, that I'm still alive? Like, I can't believe that I can still see after that huge experience? So the NRSV translates that, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Okay. Uh-huh. So El Roi can, can mean God who has seen me, yeah. or it can mean God whom I have seen. Mm. And so there's a lot that gets confused in mm. there about, I have been fully seen and yet I'm still alive, yeah. or I have put eyes on God yeah. and have yet lived. Yeah. In the way that is, you know, probably annoying. <laughs> like, I, I love holding all of that and saying, like, the ambiguity of that statement, that God has fully seen me and yet... I still, I still have life. And so there's something about, you know, Hagar is a complicated figure who has been seen by God. And that's kind of a dangerous thing. And yeah. you, you never quite know how God is going to respond having seen you. And so here there is some, not only has she survived, but she's been blessed. And so there's something really lovely about that idea that God, the God who sees blesses. I also like the God I have seen Mm -hmm. because it emphasizes that she has encountered God. She is the subject. God is the object in that sense. She names God too, like you are, Yeah, which I think is so interesting. And so she, this character of very little status or power in this text, has a direct encounter with God, has the chutzpah Mm -hmm. to name God, not to ask God's name, but to say, this is what I'm going to call you and to be seen and to be blessed. And there's something about, there's something in there for me about God sort of taking seriously the, the person of Hagar, even though, even as God is reaffirming the social structure that oppresses her, 
yet God is seeing her, being seen by her, allowing her to name God and also giving a blessing. So that the social structures are not the end of the story. The yes. social structures are, there's something more there, something deeper there. No, I, I love that, Bobby. And I think, again, like as much as we would like God to just subvert the whole social structure, that's not what happens here. But she's really sort of like witnessed at this low point. Yeah. Like I'm in a bad situation and I feel like she, she gets a, a blessing that sort of adds adds an element of sweetness to her identity that she's not just the slave of Sarai, but also recognizes that she is the slave of Sarai. Like it, it sort of, it, it sees a bigger picture and it doesn't, it doesn't solve her problem, but there is something really powerful in, in just being seen. Right. This text has been a really important text in especially womanist theology but other sorts of liberation theologies. And, and it's complex in all of these ways, but suggesting that, you know, in, in the womanist reading, this is the parallel is sort of American slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries and the role of the slave as a surrogate and mm-hmm. the complex sort of ethnic and racial dynamics and the power dynamics there. And, there's a, it's complicated in all the ways that we've talked about it being complicated. And also there is a sense that even within that oppressive system, God is appearing to and blessing and being seen by and truly seeing people who are suffering in that, in that system of enslavement. Yeah. The liberation is not yet there, right. but God's presence with the people right. who are suffering in the system is, is there. And, and that's important. Yeah. No, I really like that, that your place on that in the social hierarchy does not determine God's interest in you. Yeah. Or if it does, it would, you know, God pays more attention to people who are suffering. Yeah. So we meet Hagar again in chapter 21. This is the um, reading from Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. And we are going to pick up in verse... Eight. Any fill-in you want to do plot-wise? What's happened between these chapters? Yeah, there's a whole thing that has happened in between here that's pretty important that you would miss if you just picked up in verse 8. So God has clarified in chapter 17 that Sarah is going to be the mother of the child of the original blessing, and that that's going to be Isaac. And then in chapter 18, there's kind of a famous text where three figures who are somehow God appear to Abraham and Sarah and make that announcement. And then right before we pick up in 21.8, that first part of this chapter is the birth of Isaac. And so there is now a new baby, a second baby, um, Isaac born to Sarah. We, we have Ishmael who was born to Hagar. And so the child of the promise, the, the child of the original promise has, has now arrived. All right, so I'm going to pick us up then in verse 8 of chapter 21. The child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham playing. She said to Abraham, Cast out that slave woman and her son. 
for the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, for it concerned a son of his. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed over the boy or your slave. Whatever Sarah tells you, do as she says, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be continued for you. And for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him too, for he is your seed. Mm, the story does not get better. It does not get better. I just, the first thing that jumps out to me is that the last section started with like Sarah having this idea that she was going to have a child through Hagar. Yeah. And now that she has had her own child, she's referring to Ishmael entirely as the son of yes. that slave. Yes. So that was not a good, that system did not work. <laughs> that system did not work even, even a little bit. Yeah. First it created anxiety for Sarah and then it created a dismissal or a yeah. disavowal of, of, of Hagar altogether. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't even name them in here. It's just that yeah. slave woman and her son. That slave woman. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, there's a lot of complication in verse nine and exactly what that verb yeah. means. But Talk about that a little bit. Well, <laughs> I don't know how much I want to get into it. What I was going to say is the translation that, uh, that I have here in the CEB is Sarah saw Hagar's son laughing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it is playing, but it's so interesting. Like he is, he's just being a kid and he's like, I think playing with Isaac, they're goofing around. And so there's some sense of like, he's just a normal kid in a normal family and he's having a good time doing the things kids do. And that is seen as a threat by Sarah. That, oh, like the the normalization of this kid as like a happy kid in my family mm. is now a threat because I have this other kid who is more important or more essential. And so we've got this sort of limited sense of resource again. I, I don't want to damage the inheritance of my son Isaac. Yeah. And so just get this kid out of here. Just the... I mean, the total, like you were talking about the sort of disavowal of Hagar here. And and here it's a disavowal of Ishmael too. Like he's not, at least on the, on my reading of it, he's not done anything he shouldn't have done. Yeah. He's just like a threat now. His existence is a threat. Yeah. The verb that's used there that can be translated as laughing or playing is the same root as the name Isaac. Yeah. And so- you know, some rabbis understand it as he was sort of playing at being Isaac. He was Isaacing, like he was. Oh, I you like know, that. he was he yeah. was doing exactly what you just said. She's worried about like he was he was being Isaac, which create you know, but no one else can be Isaac. So so now you have a problem. Yeah. You know, I I, I want to like rewrite this story with some different ending. But I don't even know what that would be at this point. Yeah. I mean, not that the ending is good as it, you know, as it proceeds, but this is this is really quite a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And and the the rabbis say too that this instruction that God gives Abraham to send off Hagar, who is referred to as the slave woman, but she's either the concubine or maybe wife. Of yeah, secondary Abraham, wife. Yeah. yeah. And his son, that 
that this was one of the 10 trials that Abraham had to endure. Like this is, Mm. this is an excruciating thing. It is so interesting, Abraham's role here, because he's upset because he thinks of Ishmael as his child in verse 11. I mean, Ishmael is his child. Yeah. Yeah, yes. And yeah, Abraham has not sort of taken the same move of saying, oh, now that I've got this other kid, this kid no longer counts or whatever. Yeah. Which is what Sarah has seemed to do. And then God's instruction is do whatever Sarah says. It's so interesting, like the the preservation of that primary relationship between Abraham and Sarah somehow become with the attendant inheritance of Isaac yes. becomes the determining factor of what you should do next. Yes. No, no matter how you feel about your son, no matter how you feel about whatever, yes. listen to Sarah. Yes. Yes. I don't quite know what to do with no, that. No, I mean, I think, I think that's, it's so real because God could certainly have said your lineage is, is, is going to continue through Isaac. Right. But not included do whatever Sarah says, you know, and kick right. them out yeah, in the yeah. desert. So live peaceably together and then Isaac will inherit. Right. Yeah. Right. That is, there is the, the utmost protection is really given to that, the relationship of Abraham and Sarah. Even though what Sarah is asking for is really harsh and really painful for yeah. Abraham. It is. I wonder this promise that God gives to Abraham, I will make a nation of him too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was thinking about modern situations in which someone is pressed to give up a child because their situation is untenable. They don't have a household mm-hmm. in which that child can be safe. I don't know. I think I'm maybe I'm just sort of grasping around to try to find ways that this would connect to things that really happen in the world today. But mm-hmm. I wonder how important it was for Abraham to have that promise that things were going to be okay, even if he was not going to stay in relationship with them, or he was not going to be the one who he was not going to be able to see it be okay. Yeah, I really like I like that. And here we have, I don't know what I was gonna say for the first time, but in a different sort of way, the sense that there is enough blessing to go around. It's not the same blessing, but it's not simply that there is only enough blessing for Isaac, but there is also like the, the blessing was for Abraham and his descendants. And so God is being faithful to that, even though it might not look exactly the same in both cases. Yeah. It is interesting that here, talking to Abraham, God just says he will be blessed too. Previously, talking to Hagar, he will be blessed, and he will be the ass, an ass, a wild ass of a man, <laughs> yeah. and his going to fight with everybody. He, God doesn't say that, that part no. <laughs> to, to Abraham, but there is some nice reassurance here, and to say just because this child of yours is not the primary figure in the story going forward, does not mean that they're totally disavowed or written off, like. God is faithful. I think that I think that's a helpful part of the story. No, that reminds me of that. That reminds me of the last scene we had with Hagar, where it was, "I'm not going to risk. I'm not going to solve this problem, but I'm also not going to do nothing." 
You right. Know, there can be blessing intermingled with a whole lot of injustice. I appreciate you kind of coming back to that point in various ways. Cause I've spent a lot of time reading this story, wishing it would be otherwise, yeah. but life is not otherwise. And so like that, you're really helping me just sort of grapple with the reality of this text in a way that's acknowledging the reality of the world is oftentimes I wish the world would turn out differently but to know that there is blessing even within situations that are not the way you would want them to be is is helpful to me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's a very different genre of story than some other stories in biblical text. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the last thing that I want to point out about this section is I just get the sense that these two mothers are like fundamentally inseparable from their children. Like their fates mm-hmm. are bound up entirely with their children. And this is not the case as much for Abraham because Abraham does in the end send Ishmael out. I mean, God tells him to do it, but like Sarah just is fighting tooth and nail for Isaac. I don't know. I guess it fits in with the sort of the, the setting you offered for us at the beginning about how bearing children is, is such a, tremendously important central part of women's lives in this mm-hmm. in this time. It's also interesting when you say it that way, because Abraham's lineage is intact kind of no matter how the story turns out. So he's got a son the one way and he's got a son the other way. Yeah. And so the stakes are different for him than they are for mm. the two women in the story. Mm-hmm. And then to think through the, you know, Sarah, what she's doing is very harsh. And also she knows that God's statement is it's going to be Isaac who's carrying forward the blessing. And so in some ways what she's doing is trying to make her understanding of God's plan work out. Mm-hmm. Because if the blessing goes the other direction, then then somehow maybe God's desires are going to end up being thwarted. This reminds me of the sort of Rebecca story where she's got insight about Esau and Jacob and who's meant. So she does some things that seem kind of devious, but they are largely done to make, to ensure that God's blessing goes in the right direction. Goes in the way that God has said it should. Yeah. Yeah. So you can read Sarah that way, I think. And she's sort of looking after that in a way that Abraham isn't. I don't know what that gets you exactly, but it it makes her a more you know it rounds out her character. character. It's not just totally competitive and self interest, although you know yeah. maybe there's some of that in there too. But if she is a faithful person who believes that part of her role in the world is to bring about the will of God, and she believes that's the will of God, then yeah, yeah. I'm toying around in my head with some sort of. I just don't know if this goes anywhere though. But like Abraham and. Abraham and Sarah have been together for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And yet just right here at this moment, Abraham seems a little bit willing to be like, eh, like this other, this other plan seems fine too. And sort of to write off Sarah just a little bit, especially back in chapter 17, but a little bit also here. And so I'm just trying to toy with whether there is some sort of message here about being loyal or being faithful to the people 
who have been faithful and loyal to you, valuing your sort of primary relationships or your long-term relationships. Yeah. I've never really thought about this text that way before. And I don't know if that goes any place, but it just keeps it's sort of rattling around in my head that for Abraham just to be like, well, my two, my two wives, my two kids, like yeah. they're kind of the same. Like you sort of understand how Sarah would be a little bit like, hey, wait a minute. Like we've been together for like, I don't know how long. Yeah. He's a hundred right. now. So right. like 80 years we've been together. And yeah. I think that's really interesting, Bobby. And I, you know, as much as, Again, like the way this plot plays out is really uncomfortable. I think holding the question when you're in these sort of impossible, untenable situations, having one of the questions on your list be like, what is my primary relationship here? If I can't make all these things work together nicely, you know, because it it seems like that's what Abraham wants. He wants everything to work together nicely. But the reality seems to be if Hagar and Ishmael stayed in the house— I can't imagine that it wouldn't have turned violent at some point. I mean, they there's really a problem in the house. They would not have had a peaceable yeah. household. I don't think they would have gotten there. Yeah. Yeah. All right, should I read the last section? Yes. Okay, I am picking up in verse 14. Early next morning, Abraham took some bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He placed them over her shoulder together with the child and sent her away. And she wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone from the skin, she left the child under one of the bushes and went and sat down at a distance, a bow shot away. For she thought, let me not look on as the child dies. And sitting thus afar, she burst into tears. God heard the cry of the boy. And an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heeded the cry of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and let the boy drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He dwelt in the wilderness and became a bowman. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. I find myself wishing that we had more more of Hagar in here. Like I just, mm-hmm. you know, when she sent out, like, does she think back to her last experience in the desert? Yeah. What does it mean to her to be kicked out instead of running away? What does it mean mm-hmm. to have a child instead of being pregnant? Mm-hmm. I guess we just can't know these things. I think that's right. But we should ask them. <laughs> we should absolutely ask them. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, like, this story ends in a better place. Like, mm-hmm. she escapes that untenable family situation. She's now able, it seems, to, by the end of the story, create a life in the desert. And she f- secures a future for her son. And so, I mean... I. I kind of find myself wishing that this was what God had just mm-hmm. enabled in the previous story, right? When in chapter 17, God says, go back. Here, God says, I'm going to give you a blessing. And she creates a life for herself. This is, to me is a much more satisfying ending. I kind of wonder why, yeah. why she had to go back the first time. Yeah. 
It's a really good question. I'm trying to think like what, you know, what are the messages we drew from that about the relationship of Abraham and Sarah or like things that may not have had to do with her, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I appreciated your conver- your conversation earlier about the situation has very clearly become a situation that cannot end well. And maybe previously to this chapter, it still seemed like there could be reconciliation within this family, mm-hmm. within the sort of structures of the time. And now that it is clear that that's not going to happen, they've been kicked out mm-hmm. that once once it has become apparent that the situation is no longer reconcilable, that there are times when the separation is the right thing. Yeah. Starting over someplace else is the right thing. Yeah. God does protect her and Ishmael makes a future for them. Yeah. Yeah, because I could have imagined an alternate ending in which once Sarah has Isaac, she lightens up on Hagar. Yeah. And that is not what happens. That is not what happens. Mm-hmm. Bobby, what do you make of the fact that she, when she has used all her water and she assumes her child is going to die, she lays him under a bush and goes a little distance away so she doesn't have to watch. Yeah. It's so painful it's just, and poignant. It's just so heart-wrenching. Like, I can't, I can't even imagine myself into that scenario where those are your choices. Am I going to sit here and hold my infant son while he dies? Or am I going to put him down and go far enough away that I don't have to watch, but I'm still, I just can't, I don't even know how to think about that. It's just, it makes me, it's so painful just to think about. Do you, do you have thoughts about that? I mean, that? not really. I feel like it, one could, um, one could respond to it really negatively. Yeah. You know, and like, again, if we're looking at like between Hagar and Sarah, who is, who is in the better position and they have a higher responsibility, it's Sarah. And she did not live up to her responsibility yeah. in my book. And in this situation, it's Hagar and her son. It's Hagar. And she left him alone to die. And that's crappy. Yeah. But it's also, it's also really real. You know? I think, I think, I mean, hopefully not so often with, with parents and their children, but often when we have loved ones who are dying, we'd freeze. Or like, you know, step away or like it's too hard to sort of be with them in their suffering, too hard to witness. And so, and so they wind up alone. That's really helpful, Amy. Yeah. And just the, like, I think about that, just my own. And I mean, I've had some training about how to be with people at the end of their life. And I like, it's still something that just seems so hard. But the important, I appreciate your lifting out the importance. Like here, I, I wish she could have done, yeah, lived up to that responsibility. What she does instead is cry out, although it's interesting that God hears the boy's cry yeah. and not hers. Yeah. So God is now responding to Ishmael. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you're making me think like of this sort of levels of responsibility. And previously it was God listened to Hagar's cry. 
because she was the one Mm -hmm. who was suffering in that situation. She's still suffering here, but here it's the one with the least agency. Now is Ishmael, and that's who God is paying attention to. That's true. Yeah, the one with the least agency and the one who has no no one to see them. Yeah. 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 One of the things that's interesting in this text, and I mean, this is, you're a source critic, and so you probably are thinking about this in terms of duplication and whatnot, and do we have two versions of the same story? One of the things that's interesting about where this text is placed is we found out, so when Ishmael was born, Abraham was 86, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now Abraham is 100 when Isaac is born. And so Ishmael here is actually 14, if you just follow the logic of the text. Yeah, at least. I mean, Isaac's been weaned, so Isaac's probably a couple years old, too. He's like 17 years old. He's like driving. So on the one hand, yeah. (laughs) it creates a kind of funny moment where she's like, uh, got him in a shoulder sling, (laughs) you know, like walking around with a 16-year-old boy strapped over her shoulder. But on the other hand, like more to the point, the first time she was a pregnant woman with nobody. And so it seemed like maybe Abraham and Sarah were her best sort of option. Now, if she's got a 16-year-old son, there is a family there that is possible. Yes. And so uh, maybe God, maybe the reason she's not sent back here, or maybe the reason that there is some other possibility here is because there is a new connection, a new yeah, relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's a different moment in life. Your level of vulnerability is very different with yeah. a newborn than with a 17-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, there's a um, Jewish educator and musician named Alicia Joe Rabbins who has this series called Girls in Trouble where she she digs into all kinds of midrash about women in the biblical text. And in her story on Hagar, her song on Hagar, she really leans into this fact that he was left a bow shot away, like the image of a, mm-hmm. a bow and arrow. Yeah. And thinking about how, like, all children will leave their mothers— eventually, and they sort of like shoot out with the energy of the bow into some separate existence. Hmm. And it's interesting to, I don't know, it's interesting to take a moment to, so you have to like blur the details of the story a little bit, but like that piece of it, your your child suddenly being independent from you and in all kinds of danger from the terrible world that we are in, it's just an interesting other other layer to to think about in this story. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Bobby. There's a lot we could say about this text. What would you like to raise up for people today? Amy, I, I often feel like when we get to the this part of the podcast, I have some sort of takeaway that I can stick in my pocket and sort of say, here's the gospel for this week. In this text, what I think I have is an even more complex understanding of the world and the status of women, the role of patriarchy and the way that it plays out and sets people against each other. Like here we have two women who end up being in competition with each other based on 
ethnic and economic lines because the patriarchy is exerting pressure on them in certain kinds of ways that they didn't really ask for. And God is appearing to the people who are most vulnerable in this text, but also sending them back to the situation in which they were vulnerable. I don't know what to take away from that other than to say the world we live in is complex in all of the ways that this text is complex. And the situation of women in the world, at least as best as I can understand it, is complex in all of the same ways that this text is complex. And so just to acknowledge that that is true and to see the ways in which these women are doing their best to do what they think is right, and also the ways in which both of these women are failing in the system that they've been given to to do the right thing all the time. I mean, Sarah treating Hagar terribly, and then the point you're raising of Hagar sort of abandoning her son at the at the very end of the story. And Abraham himself being a little naive in this text, mm-hmm. sort of doing his own thing. He has not thought through all of these issues. So for me, you know, the character that I probably can relate to closest is Abraham, who is largely unaware of the complexities of the situation. He just wants to secure his legacy. He wants to love his kids. He's he's doing some things that are right, but he is contributing to and creating and putting his approval on a situation that is really hard on the women in his life. So for me, I think just acknowledging that that is true, trying to look for the ways in which that is also true in the world in which I live, in the life in which I find myself, and to do what I can do to not replicate those situations. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best I got. I, I'm not sure it's very much. But it's really real. That's what I got. This is a really messy text. It's really, really messy. Yeah. When you're looking at it, what's your takeaway from this text? It's so funny. When you said the character you must identify with Abraham, I was like, who do I identify with? I think my answer, you ready for this, Bobby? Mm-hmm. Is God. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you it know is. there's a problem when you <laughs> identify with God in the story. So I, I what I what feels meaningful to me in this story at this sort of moment in reading it is having a witness, like having someone to like really see what's happening for you and maybe help you figure out the next best thing that you can do, even if it's still pretty bad and not, Mm -hmm. not shirking away from you because the situation you're in is so bad and unsolvable. Now it's problematic in this text because God is God. And so presumably God could have done anything fine, but I'm just thinking about the role of spiritual communities as witnesses for each other's like real, honest, messy lives and Mm. how often we cannot solve the problem that someone else has. We may not really be able to alleviate their suffering in a practical way. But, you know, at the end when, when Hagar is, is seen by God, that's when she sees the well. It doesn't say that the well, like God put the well there in that moment. Right. It says God opened her eyes and she saw the well. And so I just wonder, Mm. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder 
at the hmm. the power of having someone else sitting in the sand with you when you're not sure what the next thing is to do. Uh-huh. And they, Hagar and Sarai both really don't have any other witness to what they're going through in this uh-huh. story. That's really beautiful. I, I love that. And adding the layer on there that you were raising earlier about God appearing to the most vulnerable person in each of these scenes. And so the presence with the vulnerable people being the crucial point. Yeah. It's tough, man. Every year at Rosh Hashanah, I'm like, why is this the text? <laughs> this does is not just make text us look good. Because that's where you are. The, <laughs> is it just a text because that's where you are in the cycle, or no. is it chosen? It was for that chosen day? for that reason, and I am sure I should know why, but I don't. Yeah, we read this story and then the Binding of Isaac. Those are the Rosh Hashanah texts. Oh, like yeah. if those are the only, Happy New Year. yeah, seriously, if those are the only times you go to synagogue during the year, then uh, That's yeah, it. yeah, they are, they are no joke. Yeah. Well, Amy, the way that this series is unfolding is next week we'll re-release the episode on Tamar that we recorded back in the fall, mm-hmm. and then in two weeks we'll be with back with a new podcast this one on Miriam, Moses's sister, in Exodus 2 and Numbers 12. Well, I look forward to it, and I'm really glad to be um, raising up the stories of women, even when they're uh, complicated, complicated folk. Me too. Thanks for talking through this text with me. Have a great week. Me too. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Heather Branton, Yunki Kim, Kirsten Sowie Hoffman, Scott Brewster, Lenane Shields, Todd Vosper, Nancy Jenkins, Sarah Spore, Brian Bolton, Liz and Warren Kraft, Rick Behrens, Eric Ashley, Ruth Moore, Jeff Savage, Janice Ogoshi, and Krista Klim. Join us again next week for an episode on the story of Tamar. Genesis 8. Until then, 